Or what do you say to yourselves? It's not always other people who are thinking about giving up. Sometimes it's us when we're shaken by life, when we're knocked, sometimes in big ways, with illness, with loss, sometimes in trivial things. What would you say to yourself? What do you say? What do you focus on? Well, the book of Hebrews, in effect, answers that question as a pastor writing to a congregation he knows well to people who are drifting away from the faith, who are softening their commitment to Christ. Some, in fact, have already perhaps left, are no longer meeting with other Christians. Perhaps they'd say they were still a Christian, but they're just wanting to downplay that aspect of life because of the losses and the crosses that it brings. And so this writer is writing to them to convince them to keep going, to bring them to renewed repentance and faith. And what he focuses on, well, he focuses on Jesus. I imagine that's part of the answer you might have given yourself. But he focuses particularly on something that might not be what we would focus on immediately, that Jesus is a priest. He hints at it as early as chapter 1, verse 3, when he speaks about the Son making purification. That's what priests do. And then in chapter 2, he begins to speak of Jesus as a priest. And as he goes on, he wants to expand more and say that Jesus is not just a priest, but a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And though he's mentioned it and gone away from it, he comes back to it at the end of chapter 6 when he says, God has designated this Jesus, six, six, uh, six verse, uh, sorry, 5 verse 10, high priest after the order of Melchizedek, and then 6.20 the same. Now when we hear that, perhaps we move from the slight strangeness of Jesus the priest to uh, what on earth is he talking about? Jesus, a priest according to Melchizedek. Well, the first readers would have been struck too. Perhaps not exactly the same reasons as us, but they would have said, hang on a minute, how can Jesus as Messiah be a priest? He's a king, isn't he? And you can't be a king and a priest in the Old Testament. Saul tried doing that, and it didn't turn out very well for him. And what do you mean according to Melchizedek? Well, in that way, we, we would share with the first audience of this letter some confusion over what do you mean according to Melchizedek? But perhaps it's even stranger for us because we don't deal with priests generally. Priests and priesthood are not common or familiar in our world, and so we might ask the question, why does it matter that Jesus is even a priest at all, and especially a priest according to the order of Melchizedek? Well, hopefully as we look at Hebrews 7 this morning, we'll begin to understand why that's so important to the man who wrote Hebrews and why it's important for us as Christians. If you look down, this chapter really does focus on priesthood, and if you were to read this afternoon forward into chapters 8 and 10, you'd see that really there's a little difference in which chapters 8 and 10, the writer focuses on what priests do and where they do it. But here in our passage, focuses on the person of the priest, the office. And chapter 7, the part that we read, or Ingrid read for us, uh, first, the first half, verses 1 through 10, focus on Melchizedek, the person, back there, back then in Genesis 14. And the second half focuses not on Melchizedek, 
and upon what that means for who Jesus is. So we have to follow the we have to follow the author first to think about Melchizedek, and then to think about Jesus. So firstly, the great and strange Melchizedek. Here, finally, then in chapter seven, verse one, the author gets to a place he's wanted to get to for some time. I want to tell you about Melchizedek, verse one. Verse three, consider this guy, Melchizedek, how great he was. And in fact, the word Melchizedek is about the third or fourth word at the beginning of chapter seven, and the very last word in Greek, in verse 10, bracketing off this section. He wants us to think about Melchizedek, about his strangeness, but particularly his greatness. And in order to sketch it out, he reminds us in a kind of paraphrase of Genesis 14. We read a part of it, but if you don't know it well, or perhaps you you remember about Abraham in Genesis, this is a battle he goes into. Two lots of kings in the ancient Near East have gotten together to fight against each other, and Abraham's nephew Lot is taken as a captive in war. Abraham then goes out to fight the winners of that war and to get his own nephew back, which he does. But he also takes a whole lot of spoil. The king of Sodom, who was one of the losers, asks for some stuff back, but saying, well, you can keep some of it. Obviously, you had a hand. And Abraham says, no, I don't want any. I want enough to feed the people who helped me, and I want my nephew back, but I'm not taking money from you. Why? Because it's God who will make me rich and succeed in his promises to me. And so in trust, he doesn't take money from anyone, but strangely, he gives money to this rather odd figure, Melchizedek, who turns up. And this is who the writer of Hebrews is talking about. And he points out three things about him that are rather remarkable about this Melchizedek. His titles, his offices, and his posture which he brings out in these first three verses, in which he gives this extended sort of paraphrase. His titles, because Melchizedek has some pretty fancy ones. Melchizedek, king of righteousness, king of Salem, that is, king of peace. I don't know if you ever have to fill out those online forms nowadays where there's a drop-down box with which title you can uh, put in. Like on the flights I was booking the other day, there's often Mr., Mrs., Ms., Master, and what's Miss for the, for the little girls. Sometimes you get longer ones, and if sometimes there's a doctor or a reverend, I do have a bit of fun and think, okay, I'll put that in for once, um, not normally being called doctor or reverend. But I did come across one government site the other day. I, don't, I can't remember what it was for, and I don't know who'd be filling out this form, but it had all kinds of titles that would be on the usual, things like Colonel, Governor, Archdeacon, don't know who these people are dealing with. Well, if Melchizedek had been filling out an online form, he would have been filling out name, Melchizedek, occupation, priest of God most high, and then he would be looking for the drop-downs, king of righteousness, king of peace. They're pretty exalted titles. Not just his titles are exalted, but also his offices. He is king and priest, something you're not allowed to be in the Old Testament. You get in big trouble for that sort of thing, and yet Genesis gives both these statuses to Melchizedek. And last, and perhaps most stressed in the first 10 verses, is his posture. You see, Melchizedek received a tithe from and blessed Abraham. And for the author, these are both ways in which um, it shows that Melchizedek is greater 
Right? Notice how Abraham is called the patriarch, the one who received the promises. That is, Abraham is high, but Melchizedek is even higher. Well, if someone were to ask you, who's the most important human figure in Genesis? Surely most people would think, well, it's got to be Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. Maybe Joseph. But let's go with Abraham. He's the one who receives the promises. He's the great father. And yet, according to Hebrews, Melchizedek is actually the most important human figure in Genesis. Melchizedek is greater, blessing the inferior Abraham and taking tithes, as if he's godlike, receiving the tithes that are due to God. If you look at why he points out this greatness, though, consider how great this Melchizedek was, he goes on to speak in particular of a comparison. He's not just saying he's great, but that he's greater, particularly than the Levite priests, those sons coming from Levi who served God in the tabernacle. They did so with specific commands that allowed them to do it. God had to say, you people are allowed to tax others, even though they're your brothers. But Melchizedek is even greater. Without any external relation, any physical descent, any seeming approval of God, no command, he tithes Abraham. And in him, in a, sec, uh, in a sense, extracts a tithe from the whole of Israel, including the priests, ahead of time. Now, all of that so far is perhaps not too bad to follow. But it's the last point he brings out in verse 3 about the greatness that really seems strange and gets people wondering. He says of Melchizedek that without father, without mother, without genealogy, he continues a priest forever. See, Melchizedek's not just a priest and a priest king and a priest greater than Levi and a person greater than Abraham. He's an eternal priest, a priest who sticks around forever. And so in verse 8, the Levites and Melchizedek are contrasted as the many priests who die with the one priest who lives, Melchizedek. What does he mean? How can he be talking about Melchizedek like that? No one's without father, without mother, without genealogy. Some people have tried to say, well, maybe he means it literally. Maybe he's saying that, maybe he's saying some people would say, this is Jesus ahead of time. The problem with that view is, in verse 3, it says that Melchizedek is only like Jesus. He resembles him. And that's really the key. In fact, it would probably be better if our translation said that Melchizedek was made to resemble someone else. He's been made by God to be like Jesus. You see, these things, Melchizedek did have a father, did have a mother, but his point is that in Genesis, we're not told about them. I just said Melchizedek is the most important person in Genesis. Well, what do important people in Genesis have? All of them are introduced with genealogies. We know about who begat so-and-so and so-and-so, right? And who was begotten. And then their story ends with, and they died. And yet Melchizedek lacks both of those things in the story. The point is not that Melchizedek himself didn't have a father or mother in, in, in actuality. 
but rather that God caused the scriptures to be written in such a way that Melchizedek in his portrait in Genesis stands out without father, without mother, because there would be someone who would come who would literally be a priest and a king without beginning of days or end of his life. See, wailing newborns and death knells sound throughout Genesis, but not with Melchizedek. Why? Because God was making him in the story like someone else. God, so in control of history and of the writing of Scripture, that he caused a portrait ahead of time to come of the eternal and divine Son of God who would be priest. Now that's why the writer is focusing on Melchizedek. He doesn't want to talk about Melchizedek, but about Jesus. When he says, consider how great this man was, he's heading actually for the greatness of the one who he only resembled. But before we go there, it's worth pausing. Because already there are things I think we can learn from this. First, that speaking to us as Christians, as this writer writes, he's assuring us that the Old Testament is really for us. You see, some might say uh, that the Old Testament is old. We're in the New Covenant. We're in the time of better promises, of the time of Reformation, of the time of when old things have passed away and behold, new things have come. And you can find all those things in Hebrews itself. But even though the old things have passed, the old words have not passed away because they're God's words. They're God's words that he shaped for a purpose. That's why they resemble something in Genesis 14. God is still speaking his old covenant words to his new covenant people. And in fact, we can tell here why he is. Because ahead of time, they were shaped to point us to Jesus. Why is God still speaking through these words? Not because we live in the times of Israel, not because we live under the old covenant, but because all the old world, all the old words point to the new Savior. Even when they're hard or strange or brief, like in Genesis 14 and Psalm 110, who on earth is Melchizedek? They're pointing us to Jesus. The Old Testament is for us as Christians. But also there's another thing we should learn already here in what he's saying to struggling Christians. What does he do? He goes to the scriptures and what does he do? Speak about Jesus and his greatness. I imagine that was probably going to be part of your answer. And it's his answer too. To speak to struggling Christians about the greatness of Jesus and to say, look at him. This is his great motif, his great method. If you asked him, what would you say to a Christian on the way out of the faith? His whole letter stands under the banner of 7.3. Consider how great Jesus is. There are a lot of roots out of the Christian faith. There are a lot of ways to give up. To deconstruct and deconvert seems to be a very big thing that's going on in America at the moment. And as it goes on in America, of course, through social media, it gets publicized all around the world. 
And as you listen to people explain why they're giving up as, as Christians, I imagine that most of us could sympathize with some of the reasons they feel weary, tired and weary. Perhaps they've been hurt or abused by churches or church leaders or by other Christians. We might say if being a Christian was a job, that the money is not good enough, that the life-work balance is not good enough, and that the colleagues are not always that great, to put it mildly. But when we feel and face all those things, notice, God does not say, let me try and defend that, but he points us to the greatness of Jesus Christ. It is him, ultimately, that we must deal with. It is ultimately only he that matters. And if we would leave the church, God has placed a roadblock at the back of every congregation, the greatness of Jesus Christ. It is only if we are willing to trample on him, his greatness and goodness, is there a way out. To put it in the reverse, if we would strengthen our weak knees and our failing hands, as the writer of Hebrews encourages us to do, we need to look to Jesus to look at him, to take a good long look at him, and to encourage others to do so. Perhaps if I could give you a piece of advice, as you speak to those who are perhaps heading out of the Christian faith at times, they'll want to say all kinds of things, but try to get them to look again at Jesus and talk about him. This is what the writer of Hebrews is doing putting before us the greatness of Melchizedek, but ultimately to show us the greatness of Jesus. And particular here, second, Jesus as the promised priest in the order of Melchizedek. As he moves into this second half, he's clearly got Melchizedek still on his mind, but not as history so much as promise. You see, he knows that Melchizedek is in Genesis 14, but he's also in one other place, one other place in the whole of the scriptures. Psalm 110.4, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This is a verse he keeps coming back to in chapter 7. He's rightly convinced that it shows that we need a priest, but the old priests won't do. So he starts verse 11. Now if perfection had been attainable, through the Levitical priesthood, for in connection to it, the people were legally constituted. Why would there be a need for another priest to arise according to a different order called Melchizedek, not Aaron? Why does God promise another priest many hundreds of years later who's not like the first kind if the first kind are good enough? His point is they're not. God set a timer back in the days of David, written in Psalm 110, that said, there's a way, there's a priesthood, but soon it will be old and gone because a new priest is coming. Why was it necessary, though? Why was the old covenant not enough? Why were the old priests not good enough? Because they couldn't deliver what was needed. If perfection were available, conclusion, it's not. And so he goes on to say that the old priests and the old way was weak and useless to save. 
You see, if I asked you, what are priests designed for? This is why we need to know the Old Testament a bit. What are they there for? What does it mean to be a priest? Well, one way you could think about it, uh, kids, perhaps if you've ever used some glue to stick things together, a bit of what we called in England as growing up Pritz stick, that sort of stick glue that you rub across the back of a piece of paper when you're doing craft and stick other things onto it. If you get really unlucky, you might sometimes mess around with super glue and you get it on your fingers and then realize if you're not careful, you get your fingers stuck together. The priests were to be like that kind of super glue, gluing the people and God together. And yet, it didn't work. They couldn't do it. And why couldn't they do it? Because they're mortal. They're mortal. If you look through the second half of, of chapter 11, there is a constant comparison of the Levites and Jesus. And the big difference is that they die and Jesus lives. Well, again, you might, if you're the kind of questioning type, say, why does that matter? Okay, you've said Jesus is better because he lives and they die, but why does that matter? It's because death is the great problem. In Hebrews, it is death that lords it over us. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Death is our great problem. But unfortunately, God in the law appointed priests who suffer the same problem. We need someone to stick us to God. But it's like their old superglue that's dried out and doesn't work anymore. The fact that the priests have the same problem as the people is a bit like this. Imagine you travel to a foreign country. And it's a country with tough visa restrictions. They like to throw people out if they don't have the right one. You know you need to fix a visa soon after you've landed on the ground, and thankfully, and just by chance, you meet a fellow Australian who's an immigration specialist and says they can help. They agree to take your case on, they know it's urgent, and they say you'll hear from me soon. But weeks go by, and so you ring up the business, and you get the secretary. I'm sorry, the immigration specialist is not going to be able to help you. Why? Well, the business is closing. Why? Well, I'm afraid that the specialist has been kicked out for having the improper visa. You don't want an immigration specialist who gets deported. Just like you don't want a tax lawyer who's on the run for tax fraud. And you don't want a doctor who's consistently too ill to turn up for appointments with you. You don't want a priest, a representative, who suffers the same problem that you do. You don't want a priest appointed to deal with death who's going to die like you are. What you need is a priest who lives. A priest who can truly mitigate your death because he's not exposed to the same sin and death that you are. A priest not like the priests of verse 23 who were many in number, prevented by death, from keeping going as priests, but rather a priest who holds his priesthood, verse 24, permanently because he remains forever. In Jesus, we have that priest. God has sworn and will not change his mind. 
He is the one, verse 13, about whom Psalm 110 was about and whom we know is about because he has risen from the dead, showing himself to have life forever. The life of God, which could not be destroyed even by death. What does it mean then? That we have not only a great priest who can bring us to God, a forever high priest who remains forever. That is, what is the outcome of verses 23 and 24? Well, it's verse 25. Consequently, therefore, because of this, because he continues as priest forever, who lives by an indestructible life, a life that even death couldn't destroy because he's God the Son, he is able, verse 25, to save to the uttermost. We don't really use that word anymore, do we? To save completely or to save to the nth degree, as some people say nowadays, because he always lives to be priest for us. And that means two things. It means we have access to God. You see, Hebrews spells out the problem. There's a great problem of death and sin that cuts people off from God. But if Jesus has dealt with that, then it's gone. If the barrier between people and God is gone, if the breach is destroyed, if the only rupture is healed, then through Jesus and faith in him, we have access to God. We can come to God. We can go to God. You see, if once in Genesis we saw that God's presence was like a garden with a big fat no entrance sign posted outside of it after Genesis 3, with angels guarding the way, saying, no way, you're not coming in, like a bouncer on the door, with flaming swords flashing back and forth. If that's what Eden was like after sin, now because of Jesus, in heaven is quite a different message. In heaven is a party banner saying, all sinners welcome. Come on in. Access granted. The way is open. A banner written in the blood of our living priest, Jesus Christ. The God who made us and for whom we were made, from whom we were cut off by sin, is now through Christ again our God, to whom we have free access and leading into his presence through Jesus Christ our priest. And so in Hebrews what that means is that now we can go to him for help. And not only that, but soon, we will not just go to him in prayer, we will go to him in body. Now we pray through Jesus Christ to God, looking forward to a day when we will go and be with him forever. And when we're there, when we're in God's presence, we'll be able to say, it's because of Jesus. He's gone ahead of us into heaven, guaranteeing that we will and can go soon. So we have access to God. But not only that, we have access to God that can never be taken away. And I know about a year ago when I was visiting here that there were massive floods. And if you watch the news uh, about New Zealand, they've experienced floods through pretty much the whole of the winter. And New Zealand is the kind of place uh, with hills and mountain passes 
and coastline where often in small towns there's only one way in and one way out. And so when floods come down, they sweep away the roads and the bridges and these little towns are cut off. There's no way in and no way out because there was only one way and it's been taken away. And so I think in our modern world, if we heard and understand what this man is saying here and what God is saying in Hebrews, we'd understand that God has made a way to himself, but it's only one way. There's only one road in and out of heaven through Jesus Christ. And so we might wonder to ourselves, isn't that a bit dangerous? Isn't that a bit like putting all your eggs in one basket? Isn't it vulnerable? You see, if there were many ways to God, perhaps we wouldn't care if one way didn't work for us or one way wasn't, was cut off. But if Jesus is the only way, the new and living way to God, isn't that dangerous? Couldn't it be taken from us or destroyed somehow? I think these people wonder about that. They know what it is in Hebrews, this, this audience, to have lots of things taken away from them. But he wants to assure them, no, there is one way to God, but he lives. He lives and he cannot be destroyed, even by our greatest enemies. He is priest forever. That is, he holds his priesthood as God with all divine power, the power of an indestructible life. He cannot be swept away by anything. The way is open and can never be shut. As things sweep through your life this week, as things sweep through the life of the world on the news, it can feel as if everything is able to be threatened or destroyed. But Jesus has already championed over death. Death, sickness, and all kinds of things may sweep through our lives and overwhelm us. But they cannot cut us off from God because Jesus remains. Jesus lives indestructible. The way is open to God for us through him and open forever. And that means that there is actually only one hindrance to going to God. There is only one way that you can't get into heaven. Not because the way will be taken out but if you won't walk it, if you won't accept the way that God has given to himself through his son, then you can't go to God. You can't speak to him. You can't know him. You can't be with him. Can I encourage you this morning, if you're someone who hasn't trusted the Lord Jesus as that way, that I'm afraid he's the only way. You must deal with him without whom there is no way to God. But on the other hand, as those who've gathered this morning together in the name of Jesus, can I assure you that we have him as our priest. All those things that we confessed at the beginning of the service that ought to cut us off from God and with dealing with him and being heard by him and going to him as our Father in heaven, Jesus has dealt with them all as our priest. He has stuck us together with God that we are his people and he is our God forever because he is a priest, the only true and living way to God, the only one who can unite us with God strongly and effectively, the great high priest 
in the order of Melchizedek, a priest forever. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that, that you who made us and from whom we have wandered and run away in sin, leading to the curse of death that has cut us off from you, that that curse has been conquered by the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is a priest able to reconcile us to you and that through faith in him we know you. We're already with you in him in heaven that we can speak to you confidently and know that we're heard because we address you through your Son as Father. We ask, Lord, that you would reassure us that your face is turned towards us in love and in grace and that you would keep us from wandering from you. We ask, Lord, if that there's any here who are unsure of the way to you or who are headed away from you, that you would bring them back just as you, through the voice of this preacher, were calling to people back to you in the time of Hebrews. We thank you, Lord, that in your word we've heard your voice this morning, and we ask the help of your Holy Spirit, give us lively hearts to respond to your living word. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.